Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Migration or the displacement of people worldwide is influenced by many factors. Today we look at climate-induced migration. What hotspots around the globe are impacting waves of people to leave their homes in search of water? food or better economic opportunities. Coming up, we'll hear from two agencies under the United Nations. We'll ask them about migration trends and hear their take on climate change as a factor. We'll also head down to the U.S. Gulf Coast and learn why a Native American tribe is being resettled off their island home due to flooding. The New York Times called them the country's, quote, first climate refugees. We'll hear from the tribe's chief and get the perspective of a Louisiana State University professor who studies climate change law and policy. Now, are you concerned about how climate change could impact your community? You can join the conversation this hour, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We know the White House is ambivalent to climate change. The latest sign came after President Trump withdrew from the landmark Paris Climate Agreement last month. And we know the administration's stance. But how does the U.S. military view climate science? To answer our questions, we're joined now by Sean Snow. He's editor and reporter at the Military Times, also a veteran of the U.S. Marine Corps. And Wendell Christopher King, a retired brigadier general with the U.S. Army and dean emeritus at U.S. Army's Command and General Staff College. Sean and Dr. General King, welcome to the show. Thank you uh, for thank having, you having me. I'll start with you, Sean. Uh, we know that President Trump has expressed his skepticism of climate change. Now, the Pentagon and Defense Secretary Jim Mattis have a different point of view. Tell us about what Mattis told uh, Congress a few months ago. Uh, well, for one thing, I, uh, the Department of Defense is a pragmatic uh, organization, so it's going to look at areas or uh, drivers of instability around the globe. So it's not necessarily surprising that General Mattis or the Department of Defense uh, uh, has been discussing climate change as one of these drivers of instability. Uh, so Mattis, before his confirmation hearing in January, submitted a list of uh, answered questions to members of the of the Senate, and in those exchanges, uh, he said that climate change is impacting stability in areas of the world where our troops are operating today, and it is appropriate for the combatant commands to incorporate drivers of instability. Uh, but as I said, this isn't necessarily surprising that General Mattis would have this view on climate change because the Department of Defense is, is a uh, pragmatic institution that's going to look at these drivers that could be shaping conflict and instability around the globe. They've been incorporating uh, climate change and discussing climate change in key strategic documents since the 1990s. Uh, the Quadrennial Defense Review, for instance, uh, the last several ones have uh, discussed climate change, specifically the Arctic, uh, the melting uh, uh, ice, and the uh, issues involved in the South China Sea. Uh, when Mattis was in charge of the U.S. Joint Forces Command, uh, he signed off on the Joint Operating Agreement, which looks at future trends and implications. And then they said that uh, one of the 10 trends most likely to impact joint forces is, uh, is climate change. So 
As I said, it's not necessarily surprising that the Department of Defense in uh, Mattis has this point of view. Now, I wanted to bring General King into the conversation. I understand you've been researching climate change uh, and its impact on national security for more than a decade. When uh, we heard Sean talk about uh, you know, climate change as a driver of instability, uh, explain a little bit more what he means, General King, and how climate change is a threat to national security. Well, I'm glad to. Uh, it goes back to people being able to sustain their basic human needs. Uh, do they have the fresh water in sufficient quantities? Do they have food? Uh, do they have source of energy? Are, the, are they safe from uh, disease? Those kind of basic human needs have to be met. And if you don't have those basic human needs met, uh, then your choices are very few, particularly if you're in one of the poorer or developing nations uh, where you don't have resources that you can borrow from other parts of, of your nation or your region. So what are the choices for people who lack those things, uh, no matter what the cause? Well, it's, it's you can move, uh, you can try to obtain them from other people, and it may even in eventuality result in some sort of conflict, uh, competition over water, competition over arable lands, those kinds of things. So climate change has the ability to affect uh, a lot of different things, water, uh, the availability of land, uh, all, all, and it certainly impacts the ability to uh, avoid disease. Uh, disease spread is one of the things we really, really worry about in the immediate, uh, affecting people very, very strongly. So all of those things uh, make it hard for people to, uh, to maintain their basic needs. And that's that's what my research has told us. Uh, why are people moving? What are, what are the things that cause instability, uh, insecurity in a particular region? And, and in many regions of the world, those are those things. And climate change exacerbates uh, a lot of those and, and adds to the burden of many people. Uh, the UN work says that uh, the people least able to bear it will probably be receiving the brunt of the impacts of climate change because they already live in the lands that are the margins, the low-lying lands of Bangladesh and Pakistan and India, uh, the very driest lands. Those, those are the people that will be first impacted, and those are the places that climate change is going to have the most immediate impact. So we know that... that uh, uh, get to the point it, you're looking it, for? It does, and we know that with climate change, uh, drought, desertification, um, famine, but how does that instability then impact, because there's so much focus, especially from Congress, when they're looking at national security, thinking about, well, how do we battle the extremists? With extreme, extremists, do they use uh, uh, these uh, issues in these countries um, as a factor in how um, they're moving about and influencing the people that they have power over? Well, what we think... Well, some people believe, and, and I, I believe, that what you do is you create a reservoir of people that might be amenable to the terrorist message. You know, their life is not good, but the message is your life is bad, but it's not your fault. It's caused by others. It's caused by a, an external force, and those external forces they point out are us. Uh, so you have a, in, in many of these places, population is also a, a major component of what's going on. If you've got large population growth at the same time that resources are becoming more and more scarce, what you find out is you have a huge population, usually of, of younger males that have no jobs and have no opportunity. And, and it's 
You know, they're sitting in a pretty hopeless condition. Those are exactly the people that terrorists are looking to recruit. This is where we live today. We're looking at climate migration, the displacement of people around the world because of the changing climate. Um, from KCUR in Kansas City, the studios, uh, Wendell Christopher King is joining us. He's a retired brigadier general with the U.S. Army, also dean emeritus at U.S. U.S. Army's Command and General Staff College. On the phone, Sean Snow, editor and reporter at Military Times, also a Marine Corps veteran. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit um, about uh, just how we see sea level rise or the military sees sea level rise as a danger to its installations around the country, uh, Sean. Uh, yes. So they, uh, so several reports have come out um, about uh, discussing some of the threats to uh uh, U.S. installations around um, the, the United States. Uh, and uh, in fact, just recently, the House Armed Services Committee uh, included in one of its provisions for the National Defense Authorization Act uh, is going to require uh, DOD reports on the effects of uh, climate change on military installations every year. So uh, each service component, each service branch, the Marine Corps, the Navy, the Army, the Air Force, is going to be required to have uh, to have a list of 10 installations that could be affected over the next 20 years because members of Congress and the Senate and the U.S. military uh, is recognizing that uh, uh, rising sea levels could affect uh, Navy installations, um, U.S. military compounds, but it's not just rising sea levels either. Uh, mass forest fires also threaten U.S. military infrastructure and U.S. military bases. In 2014, we had that massive uh, fire out at Camp Pendleton, which has destroyed nearly 6,000 acres. So it's an issue that the military certainly has to address. And General King, um, the challenge is if there are skeptics in Congress and, and in the White House with climate change, how, do, how does the military get the funding to help them prepare um, and ready these installations around not only our country but around the globe? Well, quite honestly, that's going to be problematic because uh, uh, there has been provisions to try to slow down the, the amount that uh, – the United States military is spending on climate change, uh, trying to analyze these kinds of things. Uh, not all of these bills have been passed, but it has been something uh, Congress has told us they're not they're not particularly interested in because of their view that of, of of climate change. To me, the problem is that climate is changing. That's a dead given fact. There's no way you can argue about it. What we're really talking about is why is it changing. Uh, and from a pragmatic standpoint, as Sean pointed out, uh, from the military, it's changing and we're going to have to react to it, both in the, in the operation of our bases and, and doing uh, mitigation to see that we can still have those bases function, but also how it affects us operationally around the world by creating threats and risks. Uh, it doesn't matter whether it's natural or man-made. The truth is it's both. That, that's causing climate change that has been measured now over the last 150 years. It's very accurately measured that we've had warming, we've had sea level rise, we've had uh, drying, extreme weather is more and more common. All of those things are documented. The argument is, again, why that's happening, and the preponderance of the evidence is it's, it's caused by human. Uh, but for the military, uh, we recognize it's changing, we're recognizing its impacts, and, and we're doing what we can within the budgets that we have to try to do the analysis that Congress wants and to start the, the early mitigation. A, a classic example for us would be the, the shipyards in Newport. Hmm. Uh, th those are the biggest in the world, and, and if 
sea level rise continues, there's a significant damage that will be going on there, and it will impact the United States Navy and the Marine Corps and overall impact all of the of military. There's cases like that all around the globe, not just in the United mm-hmm. States. And here in Connecticut, we have sub-base uh, New London uh, right, right along the coast, uh, and that is also uh, something that uh, leaders here are keeping an eye on. But I wanted to just find out a little bit more about uh, what's happening in terms of installations with uh, the ice melting in the Arctic. Uh, you know, how problematic is that, General King? It's not problematic, it's real. (laughs) The problem is that is not an area of the world that we've had to defend or or evaluate before. We didn't have a strategy because the ice kind of made it a free part of the world uh, from defense threats. Mm -hmm. That's not true anymore. Now it's navigable. Uh, There's competition over the resources. So what it represents, it represents uh, both economic opportunities for the nations that use that part of the world, and it also represents threats to the people who who live up there. Uh, The United States, China, uh, Russia, all very, very interested in that. And and to to tell you quite honestly, we're falling behind. Uh, Both the Chinese and the Russians are expanding their ability to operate in the environment with uh, more ships that can operate in that kind of uh, environment where the United States just hasn't moved on the, that kind of activity. So we're, that's a risk that, that we're accepting right now. And I know the Northern Command, who is in charge of doing that strategic analysis, is looking at it and developing plans. Uh, but it represents another place that we have to defend ourselves uh, and, and an additional cost. And then so we, we have to make that analysis of what is the cost of defending that part of the world? What should we be doing from a national security standpoint? That work's being done right now, but I think we're falling behind. I want to go back to Sean Snow, again, a reporter and editor at Military Times. Um, we know the White House and the Pentagon, they don't appear to be on the same page when it comes to climate change. What are the consequences of that, Sean? Well, I mean, you kind of have muddled messaging on uh, what's going on, so that can have an effect on policy, but it can also have sway people's opinions uh, or what they think uh, is actually uh, what are actually national security threats going going on. Um, but I will say this: that uh, for the most part, uh, the Trump administration has largely delegated a lot of authority to the Department of Defense and the Pentagon um, to continue doing what it's been doing. Um, so there doesn't seem to be any kind of uh, disagreement between White House and the Pentagon uh, as it looks at climate change, uh, as it continues to talk about climate change uh, and responses to it in its core uh, strategic documents. So we don't see anything like that going on. But it does certainly create some kind of muddled messaging. Um, and, and it's just not the Department of Defense either. Uh, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson has expressed his support of climate change and national security implications as well. And so it's not just uh, coming from the Pentagon, it's coming from other uh, U.S. institutions. I want to, before we had to break, I wanted to go back to uh, General King, who's joining us from KCUR Studios in Kansas City, also Dean Emeritus at the U.S. Army's Command and General Staff College. I understand a lot of officers are trained at that uh, staff college, General King. Uh, when I visited there several years ago, um, I saw officers from militaries around the world uh, being trained at that college. How is climate science and the challenges that impact militaries around the world, how is that discussed there? Well, uh, 
The record at uh, Command and General Staff College goes over 100 years of educating international officers, over 5,000 at this time, 163 nations. Right now, well, starting in the next year, they'll have 120 nations, uh, officers from 120 nations, and they send their best and brightest. Uh, first of all, those officers nearly uniformly arrive understanding that climate change is a significant strategic uh, defense issue. Most of their nations have it in their national defense strategy. It's something that they have to consider and evaluate. Uh, how we teach it is we, uh, we discuss it during the strategic analysis component uh, of what we teach. And then uh, I offered uh, special classes uh, on environmental security and climate change uh, as, as electives. And, and it was very popular for the international students particularly. Uh, to take those courses because many of them have specific problems that they're dealing with. For example, I had Bulgaria that took the, the class every year because they have strategic problems with water security and water scarcity driven by climate change. Uh, the Bangladeshi students. To me, Bangladesh is the uh, ground zero for everything bad that can happen from climate change. So they're keenly interested in it as a primary national security threat, and they study it. But overall, it's introduced within the context of there are many threats, and they change in different places around the globe, and each country needs to evaluate it as to where it is in, in the threats and risks that it creates for its own country, and that's the way we present it. I want to thank retired Brigadier General Wendell Christopher King, also Dean Emeritus at U.S. Army's Command and General Staff College. That's in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Uh, General King, thank you so much for joining us today. It was my pleasure, Lucy. Thank you for inviting me. Also, Sean Snow, editor and military uh, editor and reporter at Military Times, also a Marine Corps veteran. Sean, thank you. Thank you. Now, coming up, we're going to talk about migration, much bigger than the crisis in Syria. Where are the hotspots? How is climate factoring into these trends? We'll hear from the U.N.'s migration and refugee agencies after the break. How do you think countries should respond? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're looking at the issue of migration, specifically how climate change is impacting this global problem. Joining the show now from NPR studios in New York is Miriam Traore Chazan Noel, environmental migration expert at the International Organization for Migration, or IOM. Miriam, welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, we see the term climate migrant being used more and more frequently. Um, explain what it means, and is this actually a legal definition? So it is not a legal definition because states have not agreed of who climate migrants are. But usually speaking, when we talk about climate migrants, we speak about people who are moving away from their home, either because of a disaster, like a flood or a storm, or because of a slow change in the environment, like sea level rise, uh, temperature increase, uh, desertification. Now, when we look at the problem, um, and obviously I just mentioned that you're an environmental migration expert at IOM, talk about the scope of the problem. What are the statistics showing you over recent years? So in terms of statistics, what we do now is that there was last year 24.2 million people 
who were forced to migrate in the world due to climate disasters. But these people moved within their own countries, and we do not know how many people moved outside of our own countries. So we can only assume that we are way more than 24.2 million people who are moving because of um, natural disasters or climate change. Now, we hear, I, I recently went to Senegal, um, did some reporting on the eastern side of the country, and when you talk to people there, they mention that the rainy season is getting shorter, the, the, the weather is getting hotter, um, their sons are leaving and going through Libya to go to Italy or Spain. Um, you mentioned that there's no real numbers of knowing how many migrants are leaving because of these issues? No, because it's very it's very hard to count because in your example, these people would be counted as economic migrants if they go to Europe, for instance, because we do not try to understand why is it that they cannot stay in their own countries. And indeed, in Senegal, you have old fishermen villages who are trying to move out of these areas because they cannot fish anymore because of climate change impacts on the ocean. And so what needs to be done to two-track um, the, these, uh, um, the reason these people are leaving? You mentioned that they're labeled as economic migrants. But if, if again, if, if they're not able to grow food um, and they're hungry and they're leaving, I mean, what are some ways where you can actually get um, firm numbers? I mean, there's already a lot of um, researchers and universities who are trying to develop methodologies to count these people in a way that is useful in order to develop meaningful policies. So there are already efforts to, to try to develop the right methodology to count these people. But more than anything else, we need political will from the states who are um, hosting these migrants or from the states from which these migrants come from in order to look at these issues and to really try to understand what is going on, what are the root causes, and how can we act. Now, I mentioned you're from IOM. Can you talk specifically what, um, how uh, migration because induced by climate change, how you're tracking that, environmental reasons, and some of the progress that IOM is making on this, this front? So in terms of progress, uh, let's talk at the policy level. Uh, there's been a lot of interest in this question in the last few years. We would not have had this conversation five years ago because at the time, states were not interested so much in these questions. So what we try to do at IOM is to bring visibility to these issues at the political level because we're an intergovernmental organization and we work with states. And what we're hoping is that in the next couple of years, the United Nations is negotiated a new international agreement on migration and that within this agreement we will see some um, references to climate change and how can we, what can we do to support people displaced because of that. Uh, in the, earlier in the show, I mentioned a lot of focus on, on Syria. Where are some other hot spots um, in the world, uh, Miriam, where you're seeing uh, migrants leaving for many different reasons? So it's not the most, uh, the higher number of people, but it's one of the most visible uh, examples. It's the small island states in the Pacific, Fiji, Tuvalu, Kiribati. These, these islands are very small, but most of the populations are living on the coast where the danger for them is that they cannot stay because of sea level rise. So what we're seeing is more and more people moving inland, but also maybe having to move to different countries, either different islands or to bigger countries in the region. I wanted to bring into the conversation now Erica Bauer. She's joining us uh, via Skype, Associate Climate Change and Disaster Displacement Officer at the UN High Commissioner for Refugees or UNHCR. Erica, welcome to the show. 
Thank you. I understand, uh, again, you're on Skype, and hopefully we're able to, to hear you clearly. Um, but I wanted to talk, we, we have a, uh, a colleague from the IOM on the line, but also wanted to find out how the UNHCR um, is approaching climate-induced migration. Thank you so much for, for this opportunity. As we all know, root causes and drivers of displacement across the globe are diverse and complex. The role of climate change and disaster displacement how, uh, disasters, however, is increasingly acknowledged not as this future hypothetical, but a current reality. Um, and this is posing tremendous challenges for states, international organizations, and we all really need to work together to ensure effective responses. And, and how, how is UNHCR working on this issue? So IOM has their own environmental migration um, uh, inter- at the IOM office. Uh, uh, Miriam is the environmental migration expert. Um, but you're with UNHCR, both of these agencies under the UN. So how are you specifically working on the issue? So the, as Miriam already mentioned, the majority of climate-related displacement is internal. People remain within their borders. So they're protected by the guiding principles on internal displacement, as well as regional conventions, such as the Kampala Convention. UNHCR supports um, governments to, in the international community more broadly, supports um, populations to be protected in these contexts. However, when people are displaced across international borders, they do not typically fall within the definition of who is a refugee, according to the 1951 Refugee Convention. However, um, there are certain situations where people who are displaced across borders might fall under regional definitions, such as the OAU Convention in Africa or the Cartagena Declaration in the Americas. Well, um, can I go back to something you just said, Erica, about how um, these people that are leaving are not classified as refugees? How problematic is that based on this old definition, based on this old definition of what makes a refugee? So the definition of refugees emerged from a very specific context, and a lot of uh, a lot of organizations would actually argue that expanding the definition of who is a refugee to include people displaced by climate change would undermine protection for those who already do meet this refugee status. Because as Miriam already mentioned, there is a lack of political will. Now, I wanted to, we keep hearing this term, uh, climate migrant. Also, the, the term climate refugee, it's something that uh, the former U.S. Secretary of State, uh, John Kerry, uh, mentioned at a conference just a couple of years ago. He calls them a new class of migrants. And we as leaders of countries will begin to witness what we call climate refugees moving. You think migration is a challenge to Europe today because of extremism. Wait till you see what happens when there's an absence of water, absence of food, or one tribe fighting against another for mere survival. Do you think that's a proper way to use that term, Erica, this idea that these people are climate refugees? No, in fact, I think it's a, a counterproductive way of using the term because in international law, as I mentioned, the term refugee has a very specific meaning. And using this term in other contexts undermines protection both for people who are fleeing because of climate change, but also for those who are fleeing for other reasons. So in UNHCR, we would argue that a more effective term to use to identify people that are in this gap of people that don't have legal protection is persons displaced across borders in the context of disasters and climate change. I know that's a mouthful, 
but it's legally accurate. Mm. It's legally accurate, um, but as you know, uh, lots of, of countries uh, are, are under stress now because there are so many people um, flooding uh, their borders. Um, what can be done, uh, as, as John Kerry and others are mentioning, this problem is, o- is only going to continue. You're not just going to see people um, leaving uh, Syria or um, countries in Africa. In these contexts, ensuring access to international protection for people displaced across borders because of climate change is extremely important, but perhaps but there are other methods. For example, complementary protection standards and temporary protection or stay arrangements, uh, which is something that UNHCR has worked on quite extensively, are, are, are ways through which states can offer protection, including leave to remain on a humanitarian basis. So the Nansen Initiative, which was a, a state-led process by Switzerland and Norway, had a series of regional consultations and then in 2015 in October a protection agenda was endorsed by 109 governments and this protection agenda outlines examples like those that I just mentioned such as temporary protection and complementary protection other solutions to refugee status for these types of persons. This is where we live. Uh, today we're talking about migration induced by climate change. Uh, joining us via Skype, Erica Bauer, Associate Climate Change and Disaster Displacement Officer at the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, or UNHCR. And then from NPR Studios in New York, uh, Miriam Traore, Chazelle Noel uh, is with us, environmental migration expert at International Organization for Migration. Uh, Miriam, we heard Erica mentioning the, the Nansen Initiative. Can you talk um, further about some other initiatives uh, to get uh, countries uh, on board with how to stem this problem that's expected to grow? Mm -hmm. So first of all, if I can go back to your question of what can be done, I think one very important thing to to note is that most of these climate migrants do not want to migrate. If you go and speak to these people, most of the time they want to stay where they are. So to me, one very important thing is to make sure that we invest in measures such as climate adaptation and mitigation in their areas of origin in order to try to reverse what can be reversed and uh, so that people can stay where they are. So that leads to the next uh, answer, which is um, in terms of what are some of the initiatives. So there's this thing called the Global Compact on Migration, which is being negotiated within the United Nations. That should be the first international agreement amongst all UN member states on how to uh, handle international migration. Hopefully climate will be a part of this of this agreement and hopefully also it will raise issues of what to do to avoid migration in the sense that people do not want to live. So what can we do to help them to stay where they are? Erica, I wanted to go back to you. I understand places like Fiji and Jamaica have national policy on planned relocation. Um, Is this something that other countries should also be undertaking? Erica, can you hear me? Oh, I think we lost Erica. Um, I'll go back to uh, Mariam Traore, Chazelle Noel, environmental migration expert at IOM. I'll ask you that question, uh, Mariam. We understand that places like Fiji and Jamaica um, have policies or are working on policies for planned relocation um, if indeed people need to leave because of, um, say, natural disasters. Uh, What's your take on that, Mariam? Absolutely. There is a need for as many countries as possible to think these things in advance because planned relocation is about thinking what will happen in a few years, what can we already prepare now in order for this 
relocation of people to not be a traumatic experience. I mean, even in this country, in Alaska, you have villages around the coastline which are desperately trying to relocate because they simply cannot stay where they are. They cannot fish anymore. The conditions are too dangerous. They have to move inland. But because of this lack of planned relocation guidelines, it's a very complicated process. It's complicated to find the money. It's complicated to understand the administrative support that can be extended to these people. So in short, if they have had guidelines on how to relocate, I'm sure their life would be easier right now. Erica, are you back with us? I am indeed. Thank you. And I, I wanted to ask I wanted to ask you about uh, the planned yeah. relocation that we see some countries uh, uh, dealing with. Are you still there, Erica? Uh, lovely Skype. Okay, we'll go back to, to Miriam. We wanted to hear a little bit more about how, how IOM is working on climate resilience, Miriam. So in terms of, of climate resilience, I think one of the key things that IOM is trying to do at the moment is to work with climate specialists, climate scientists, uh, using climate f- funds uh, in order to uh, support climate adaptation in some of the of the regions most affected by climate change, notably in West Africa. So that uh, that might seem like a fairly simple idea, but it's not easy to work across um, specialities. I mean, to bring uh, scientists to work with migration specialists, it's not something that is has been easily done so far. So what we are trying to do is to work uh, with people who have that climate-specific knowledge in order to support uh, adaptation measures on site. Uh, Miriam, uh, tell us why that that's difficult to get scientists and migration experts to work together. I think it's simply because it's it's new. I mean, when you think about this this question of climate migration, it's only been in the past five or six years that ha- that has become um, a topic of interest. So what does it, this mean concretely? It means that the money is only coming now to develop projects and partnerships to work on these questions across the board. Um, so I think it's just simply that like it's a new topic. It's of interest now. Donors are starting to be interested. Money is coming in. And we are seeing more and more partnerships on these questions. Um, before we um, head to break, uh, Miriam, I wanted to ask you, you know, what kind of message does it send when um, in the United States we have an administration um, that, that is skeptical of climate science um, and is you know, not looking, also skeptics in Congress, uh, not willing to fund initiatives that might help with climate resilience in these countries to stem the tide of people leaving if they need to. What kind of message does that send to uh, member nations that, that um, feel like they need to take the brunt of this responsibility? I think, of course, it's 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 worrying because one of the key achievements of this Paris Climate Agreement, from our point of view, was that this agreement included the question of climate migrants uh, in the text, um, basically encouraging nations to think about uh, migrants when they are developing climate adaptation measures. So, of course, if you have a major country which seems to be skeptical of this uh, agreement that was universally agreed upon, it it does raise some questions, but hopefully we still see some strong political will from other nations, uh, notably the European countries, and of and hopefully that will be uh, there will be enough support for for this agreement to to be meaningful. I want to thank Miriam Traore Chazel Noel, environmental migration expert at International Organization for Migration, or IOM. She joined us today from NPR's New York studios. Miriam, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. 
Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Also want to thank Erica Bauer, Associate Climate Change and Disaster Displacement Officer at UNHCR. She joined us today via Skype. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we find out more about the areas here in the U.S. that have been impacted by environmental factors like flooding and the government's efforts to resettle residents who've been displaced. If climate science has warned us that U.S. coasts and some major cities will be underwater in the future, where will displaced Americans go? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, federal statistics estimate 56% of women will be in the workforce by 2024, a nearly 1% decrease still over a 10-year period. Still, investment in female leadership has grown at some workplaces, including Connecticut-based United Technologies. On the next Where We Live, we'll take a closer look at those efforts and consider the future of women in the so-called C-suite. That's tomorrow. Now, today we've been talking about the issue of migration and how climate change exacerbates the problem worldwide. We heard from uh, the uh, IOM, UN's migration agency, IOM, earlier, uh, Miriam Miriam Traore Chazelle Noel told us migration is not just a problem seen in poor countries. That last year, more than one million people in the U.S. were displaced by disasters. She says these people could be called climate migrants, people in coastal areas in Alaska and Louisiana, people like the residents of Ile Jajan Charles. The federal government has allocated millions to resettle these Louisiana residents inland. Joining us now to talk about it is Albert Naquin. He's chief of the Ile de Jean Charles uh, Band of the Biloxi Chittimacha Choctaw Tribe in Louisiana. Uh, chief Naquin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Um, I understand yeah, your phone line's a little fuzzy, so hopefully our listeners can hear you. So I'll just ask you to speak up. But tell us a little bit about your island, your home for many years, and its history. Well, Elder Don Child is, you know, it started, uh, I guess, back in 1835 when uh, the Removal Act of 1830 was put into place where uh, the Indian was, uh, I guess, most everybody know about the Trail of Tears. So I guess our uh, tribe, uh, I guess you could say the Biloxi and the Chittimacha and Choctaw, uh, of course, the Chittimacha was already in Louisiana, but the Biloxi and the Choctaw migrated from Mississippi and, and, uh, and, our, and uh, Alabama. And uh, instead of going to Oklahoma, where we, we migrated south to, uh, to South Louisiana, and we kind of band together for strength. So that's why we called uh, Biloxi and Chittimacha and Choctaws. Uh, and we've been there since 1835. And when we first started there, I guess when our ancestors first got there, uh, the the land was was plentiful. I mean, you know, people that live off the land. I keep I keep talking about the the uh, I guess the the Great Depression where uh, folks uh, didn't even know they had a depression because no word they uh, lived off the land. Uh, no word they had everything they needed. I mean, m- money was not something that they they needed. Uh, all they needed was food to live on and uh, and clothing. So. But anyway, they, they, they sell pelt uh, uh, from uh, trappings, so from the muskrat, the raccoons, and also to make a few, few dollars. They sold oysters, they sold uh, shrimp, they sold the uh, fin fish to, to make a few, a few, a few dollars in order mm-hmm. to, to have clothes. But a, a lot of the 
the the ladies made uh, uh, the especially shirts, uh, mm-hmm. pants so it was a little bit tougher because we didn't have that. But uh, uh, they, they made shirts from uh, from flower sacks. So it sounds uh, like. They, they, uh, it sounds like the land was is very plentiful and it was a good place to live for many years. But in your lifetime, I understand 98% of the area, the land area of the island, um, has been disappearing. Um, what has that been like to see your island being consumed by water, and where has that left uh, your tribe? That left, <laughs> yeah, uh, plentiful, like uh, 33,000 acres. There were uh, probably in, in the early 50s. And now we're down to 320 acres, and the land is just for us to live on. So, and also uh, they, the the U.S. Corps of Engineers uh, built a hurricane protection levy to the north of us, uh, leaving us out, uh, in other words, for the Gulf of Mexico to to eat, eat us up. So uh, that's leaving us no 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 choice but to to move to higher ground. And, you know, uh, at first I was against that, but, but uh, I realized that I moved off of there in uh, Elda Island in 75 and just like 10 miles away. And it does work because, in other words, uh, uh, since I moved off, I haven't lost any of, uh, appliances or furniture due to hurricanes. So it, it does work, and, and I'm only 10 miles away. So now the resettlement has uh, been calculated through CPRA and all this where uh, 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 sea level rise, climate change is going to have water, and uh, the piece of land that they're going to put us on is uh, is good for at least uh, between uh, 50 to 100 years, probably more than that, but you know, we're, uh, with our calculation, that that's what it is calculated to be. So it put us in a, in a position where we have to move away from home. Mm. I understand the HUD gave uh, your um, your tribe uh, $48 million to help with uh, the, with resettlement in, in Louisiana. I wanted to bring into the conversation Edward Richards. He's a professor at Louisiana State University Law Center, head of Climate Change Law and Policy Project. Edward, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, no, this whole show, we've been talking about migration and how it can be um, in, caused by a climate change, the, the slow onset of drought or desertification, also famine. Um, the New York Times called uh, these um, residents of this island where uh, Chief uh, Nockin lives uh, climate refugees. Is that entirely accurate? No, and it's been unfortunate that we've not been able to uh, convince the Times and others to really look at the particular problems of, of Louisiana and the Mississippi Delta. The, while certainly we are affected some by sea level rise, the primary driver of our land loss is subsidence due to the normal Delta cycle. And tell Delta's us more about wax, that. Deltas wax and wane as the river changes course. Um, there are areas um, that are now under 20 feet of water, 100 miles off of New Orleans to the southeast that had cypress forest 2,500 years ago. River changes course. The land is always subsiding. The sediment's not filling the place where the river was. It's filling a different place. So this is characteristic of all deltas to a greater or lesser extent. It's just the Mississippi is one that we deal with. The other characteristic of the delta is it's very flat. You might go 30 miles inland and gain a foot of elevation. So small changes make big differences. 
Um, so we, you know, while we talk about that as climate change, it's really subsidence. Mm-hmm. Subsidence is perhaps less sexy than talking about climate change. In the longer term, as sea level rise increases, mm-hmm. it'll become a very important component in, in southern Louisiana. So, so, the low elevation particularly mm-hmm. complicates thoughts of relocation. Louisiana has this sort of difficult dilemma. It wants to get pity money from the rest of the country to bail us out, so it wants to emphasize the land loss, but it also doesn't want to actually admit that there's no restoring this land, and because of the elevation loss, we're going to lose most of southern Louisiana. So if you're going to actually talk about migrating you need to be talking about migrating 50 or 100 miles inland. Otherwise, you're still going to be within the reach of the hurricanes. So we have that dilemma. Mm -hmm. We want to get money from the rest of the country, but we don't want to admit the hopelessness of our situation because of the combination of increasing sea level rise and the background Mm -hmm. subsidence. I wanted to get um, Chief Nockin's response to um, your explanation of what's happening uh, there in the Delta. Uh, Chief Nockin, what do you, how do you respond to the professor? I agree with him. Uh, You know, uh, our road to the island was was finished in 1954. Uh, At that time, it was probably like five feet, because what it was, it was a canal that was dug, uh, and they used the dirt to build the road on, and, and as you all know today, the road, as soon as we get a high tide, is uh, is underwater, so yeah, subsiding is, uh, is, is, uh, is, is the key element, I believe, to our problem, but, uh, but yeah, our road, when it was first built, it was uh, probably four and a half, at least, at least, yeah, four and a half, five feet uh, above, uh, above water. And now it's just about a foot or so above water, and when you get a high tide, it, it goes underwater. So, yes, I, I, I truly agree. I mean, no, nobody wants to admit the, the truth, but the truth of the matter is, yeah, it's subsiding is, is one of them. Because I know sea level rise where my house was at, my mom and dad's house was at, uh, when, when they built uh, that, that, home, that first home, uh, yeah, some, some, some uh, scientists had said that, uh, that, uh, that, you know, that, that the, the, the sea level rise was coming up a, a, an inch a year, and I figured, I said, well, hell, that, that would be true. Uh, the, the land at, at our, where my mom and dad's house was, that would be like six, uh, five feet underwater because we basically was at sea level at the time. But but it's still above ground, so, I mean, it's still above water. So, uh, yeah, uh, subsided is, is, is the key thing, but that we're not, not, with, not with the homes at, but, but, you know, uh, everything around it is uh, is mm. marsh, so that goes over. I, I, the chief, the chief mm. makes a really good point. You see yes. this throughout lower southern Louisiana as roads that were high and are now impassable on high tides or small, you know, winter storms. You see graveyards with you know with gravestones sticking out of open water. Because the other the other rhetoric we hear is how the coast is eroding. But the coast isn't eroding. It's just being inundated. If it were eroding, the trees would fall over, the gravestones would fall over. They wouldn't be sticking up in the water. So it gives you this picture of this. The sea level rise and subsidence gradually inundates. But then when you superimpose the storms, it can push a 20-foot surge 10, 15, 20 miles inland. It can push a 10-foot surge 50 miles inland. 
then you get the larger picture of the hazard beyond the day-to-day flooding. So, Professor Richards, you gave us an explanation of, of the, the main reason you're seeing uh, these islands pretty much being inundated with water. We just have a couple of minutes. What are some policy solutions that, that could help, again, larger questions of, of resettling people? Where do they go, and will they be welcomed uh, where they are resettled if this continues to be an issue? There's not a good solution to resettlement. If you study resettlement from the Alaskan communities and others, the place you can really see resettlement um, information is look at urban renewal. Look at when we put highways through our cities. We resettled hundreds of thousands to millions of people. Look at the people that were resettled after dam projects. Those are really the resettlement stories Uh, We find it's difficult, it's costly, the poor will suffer the most, but we we really either resettle going forward or we resettle people when we're picking up after a disaster. And that's, that's the horrible policy problem. We have an unsatisfactory resettlement system. Uh, It really is difficult to relocate communities and preserve a sense of community. At the same time, It's not that there's a choice, and it's do you do it before the disaster or after. I think the chief might want to comment on how difficult it's been just in his small group to get Mm -hmm. people to agree on where they want to move to now that they have some resources to do it. And we just have a little bit of time left, but uh, Chief Nockin, do you want to mention how uh, even with this HUD money, people are still free to stay despite their homes being... uh, possibly flooded out in just a couple of years. Again, we have just under a minute, Chief. Yes. Uh, it, it's very, very difficult. No, I've been I've been trying to, to get them uh, to relocate since uh, 2002, and I, I've always had an uphill battle, and it, it's still hard to convince those that are still living on the island to, mm-hmm. you know, to take the, the leap and, and, you know, and move to a safe, safer ground. Uh, but I believe they're all, well, I ain't going to say all, probably about 90% of the, the folks are, are ready to, to get out. Even, uh, you know, we're, we have we have a priest there, uh, it was my first guy, Papa the Rock. And, uh, and Chief Nockin, yeah. we're, unfortunately we're out of time, but we do thank you telling us about um, your tribe and, again, efforts to resettle them as the island um, is inundated with water. Chief Albert Nockin, um, thank you so much for your time. Also, Edward Richards, professor at Louisiana State University Law Center, head of the Climate Change Law and Policy Project. Professor Richards, thank you. Thanks for having me. Special thanks to Carmen Boscoff and Jeff Tyson.